everyone, and welcome back to Remember, Remember That Time I Got Cancer. This is your host, Erica, and welcome to episode 14. Today, I'm hoping to keep it a little on the light side, but I am going to be talking really broadly about my experience in the, in the chemo treatment center itself. But I think there are some some stories that are on the lighter side, and I would just say I don't want this to be really dramatic. I know a couple episodes recently have been on the heavier side, and, and overall I think this hasn't been as funny as I intended, despite the fact that I can look back on a lot of this with a sort of gallows humor. Uh, but I'm hoping that today there will at least be some some funny anecdotes, as, at least as I get towards the end, since I've done a little bit of prep. So to start out, I should explain a little bit about the kind of chemo I was given and more importantly, why. So I mentioned in obviously the very first episode that I had an ovarian teratoma, so a germ cell tumor made up of cells that belonged elsewhere in the body. Uh, My particular tumor being made up of skin, of bone, of hair, and most notably of neural tissue. And the neural tissue was ultimately represented the the cells which were cancerous. I was very briefly worried about my brain, but they were quick to assure me that my actual brain cells were just fine. It was just the neural cells in this tumor that were the problem. So my tumor was placed at stage one. So I had stage one, I had a stage one ovarian teratoma, but on top of staging, tumors also get grades. So stage one basically means there's no sign of metastasis. There's no sign of it spreading to other organs or to other parts of the body, but it was not able to be a grade one. A grade one would have indicated that it was also contained in the original organ where it originated, in my case, the ovary. So if it had been stage one, grade one, there would have been no need for chemotherapy, which is part of why I find myself so frequently feeling... So frequently feeling, we're going to leave that sound of Kenzie shaking in there, but why I I so frequently am feeling irritation towards my doctor that ignored all the signs that there was something seriously wrong with me. Kenzie, today is not your episode. She's going to get her own episode soon. Anyways, but because if the cancer had been detected earlier, I wouldn't have needed chemo at all. If it could have been detected before, it, you know extended outside the walls of my ovary, it would have been a stage one, grade one. Removal would have been sufficient. And while I still would have had oncology checkups, I would have been considered clear with surgery alone. But that was not to be. Now, interestingly, the team at the hospital where I was treated for the cancer, where I received my chemo, uh, that is, uh, I was treated at Geisinger in Danville, There was a bit of an academic conversation about whether or not you treat a stage one grade two tumor. The practice was made up of, I think, three MDs, but one of them was also a PhD and who had done uh, some doctoral study as well. Kenzie, all she wants is my attention. Okay, sit, sit, I pet you while I do this. Interestingly enough, when I knew that I was making the transition to... Geisinger, I looked at the doctors there and I had a choice between, I think, one male doctor and two females. And I chose one of the women. Interestingly, I had chosen the PhD and 
That being said, the doctors all discuss the cases. They work collaboratively. And the head of the department was the the male doctor. And despite the fact that I had chosen a female GYN oncologist with the knowledge that she was going to be doing, or they rather, were going to be doing pelvic exams, when I went in for my first appointment, or even before that, I think, I knew that the the head doctor of the practice had become interested in my case um, because it is unique. What I had is not common. It's not something that they would see very much. And and he wanted more of a, God, I was going to say hands-on part in this, but that sounds really gross, but there I've said it. He wanted he wanted to be my the primary oncologist on the case once I got back to America. And I really wasn't in a position to argue about it. And to be frank, I'm not sure that I cared that much. I mean, I cared in that I really didn't want it to be a male doctor, but it seemed largely unimportant by the time that that push came to shove. But the PhD was not really of the opinion that you don't treat a stage one grade two teratoma, but she was at least familiar with some papers which have been published which say, you know, maybe the chemo isn't necessary for these patients. And I suspect in 10 years they won't be treating my cancer with chemo or at least not with the chemo that I was that I was treated with. Um, but I think that is true of, of many, many cancers. I think that in 50 years we'll be looking at chemotherapy the way we look at leeches, where it's like, huh, I guess it worked, but it also sort of sucks, though leeches... Did leeches work? I don't know. It's not important. At any rate, it was ultimately decided, and with my with my knowledge, but I was also of the opinion that I was going to do whatever the doctors thought best, that, yeah, we were definitely going forward with chemo. It's nice to think that maybe chemo isn't necessary, but that's just not a gamble any of us were really willing to take. So what's what's interesting about the cancer that I had and the chemo that I received is that my particular cancer frequently does not show up in any kind of tumor markers. Uh, tumor markers are something that they can look for in specific blood tests. There is not one blanket blood test. I want to be really clear. There is not one blanket blood test that says you definitely don't have cancer. It is a series of very specific blood tests and some of them don't appear. And, and mine is one that wouldn't necessarily appear in a blood test. I had some atypical tumor markers through my early testing phase, but there's no indication that those tumor markers would always be elevated in cases of my cancer. Even in my particular body, it could just as easily be a, the body knew there was a tumor, but it wouldn't those numbers would not elevate until there was a substantial physical tumor. That's the theory, but it's it's not totally clear. So because my cancer can't be tracked at early, early stages, at essentially precancerous stages, because I don't have those handy tumor markers, the theory with treating teratomas like mine is to blitz the body hard and fast with chemo. And they give the body a lot in a relatively short time. I had three three-week cycles of chemo, so nine total weeks. Now I'm not sure. There was supposed to be a week off, but I think there wasn't really a week off. There were just short weeks. So I received what's called BEP chemo. 
BEP chemo is made up of bleomycin, atopicide, and cisplatin, which is confusing because that's not the order they give them in. I guess that's the order they write it because it's a handy little acronym or whatever. It is a pronounceable rather than cisplatin, which is P, bleo, which is B, and atopicide, which is E. Though I'm not even sure that's the order. I actually think it's cisplatin, atopicide, bleo. It's, it's PEB, though it... It really doesn't matter. So all of these chemos come with their own happy little set of side effects. Uh, Cisplatin would be the first drug I received on a Monday morning. I think running the cisplatin took like three hours. It has to be infused relatively slowly. And it was definitely one the one that sounded most like a poison. And it did do, I mean, it does damage. So that's the cisplatin. And then the bleo, uh, the bleo is known for, for two kinds of particular damage. Um, it's known for damaging the lungs and also known for causing some rather unique scarring. They tell you that when you're being given bleomycin to avoid as much as possible scratching anywhere on yourself, because what can happen is it can leave um, brown lines behind. I had a couple of, of bleo scars because you try not itching ever for nine or 10 weeks. It's not possible. I don't think there's any bleo scars remaining. I have one unique scar that is left on me, but I think that's going to get its own episode. I don't think that's enough for a whole episode, but it's an interesting story and it's a weird mark. Anyways, this is platinum, the bleomycin, and the atopicide. Now the atopicide I received three days a week, every week. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, three days a week, every week. So a total of, of nine days of the atopicide. It was the, I believe, the the shortest. No, that was the one that took an hour. The bleo, I think, only took 20 minutes. Uh, but the atopicide took about an hour to run. And then I would get fluids and all that. And the atopicide, of course, also had its its own side effects. They do a lot of testing before chemo to figure out baselines. They do a lung function test. They do a hearing test. Because a lot of people come through chemo and they have tinnitus, tinnitus, ringing in the ears. I still occasionally get flares of that, though not as badly as I was getting them during chemo, thank God. Anyways, so, so that's the, the three drugs that I was being given. And there was talk of three or four cycles and no one ever gave me like a firm answer on if it was going to be three or four and really until the end of week three, a decision hadn't been made now, but I mean, it was before the end of week three, I believe I had spoken to my doctor who verified this was going to be the last week of treatment, but I don't know what that was based on. Now I'll talk about the very last day another time, but I spent a lot of time worrying if I was going to have to endure a fourth, you know, a fourth cycle, three more weeks of this treatment uh, ultimately I did not, which was great. <laughs> so that was, that was that, that was my, my cocktail of drugs. The, the thing which marked and made chemo notable was that it is really, really boring. So one day, one day a week or one day every three weeks, I honestly can't remember. I would have a a long day of treatment where I was given the 
cisplatin, the etoposide, and the bleo. Again, the cisplatin taking something like three hours to run, the etoposide taking like an hour, and the bleo taking, you know, 20 or so minutes. Plus the time in between bags, it's not like the nurses had so much time that they could be right on top of me as soon as one bag finished. It was not great when the alarm would go off for a long time, but they were busy, um, unfortunately. And, and then afterwards I would always get at least one full bag of fluids, one liter of fluids infused and sometimes more than that. And then there was the checkout process where they would run both heparin, which is a blood thinner and saline, uh, into the line to clean it. Gross. You, You would like taste the, they would insist that you taste the heparin and you don't taste the saline. I always thought that I could taste like rubbing alcohol in the saline, but it didn't go in my mouth. It was running into a line at my chest. So the fact that I could taste it at all was gross. Um, so it was long days and often enough, I was lucky to have my mom or my dad or, uh, Rachel would come and sit with me through treatment. Even when I didn't have someone with me, I was able to call somebody. I think on more than one occasion, I called Emily, uh, Emily and John both and was able to talk to them to sort of kill time. I had my iPad, with Netflix or whatever, but it, it was just long days. And on the days I was alone, it was really lousy. But at the very least, even on, on the long days where I was alone, either if, you know, if dad was with me, he would go and get us lunch. And if mom was working and I was alone, she would, she would go and pick up lunch somewhere local for us. Some like we'd get sushi or we'd get tacos which was always sort of a nice treat given everything else that I was going through. But it was also a sort of uncomfortable place to be. The The ward sort of thing is made up of these rooms, all sort of open flow, but, you know, these little corners where there would be six or eight weird rubbery recliners where you could, like, sort of get comfy. They were heated, which I guess was nice. But having to look around at everyone who was all getting this treatment you would think gave me a sense of solidarity, but I was frequently the only person under like 60. And sometimes I would look around the room and I would see someone and I would just think, oh my God, you're losing. And seeing that was actually really demoralizing for me. Um, Despite my really good prognosis, I don't think I've talked about this before. My prognosis for survival was nine and 10. There was you know, a 90% chance that I was going to beat this thing. And those are good numbers for cancer. But to be, what, 24 years old and told that there's a 10% chance of death? Those aren't good odds. I mean, I, you know, I look at a... I play D&D now, so I look at, say, a D10 and, and think of how many times I could roll that without getting a critical failure, as it were. That's not great. I didn't love that. And and seeing people that were really struggling and that were being, you know, so weakened by the chemo itself was was really hard. I don't know. It it, it was just difficult. And I think again being the only young person there most days, and I mean thank God, it it did make me feel very alone. And so they frequently went out of their way to put me into a private room. And I don't know if that's because they knew that I was struggling with that or because they assumed that I would be struggling with it. But it was it was really nice. I could I could relax more in the private rooms. They didn't want me to close the door for whatever reason. And that was fine. But it it gave me a sense of of privacy. 
And I think I, I would bring like coloring books. People were really nice. I had some coloring books. I had some some cross stitch kits that I would work on. And I just, again, just try to keep myself occupied. So I promised some funny anecdotes. I think it was one of my first days of treatment, but it couldn't have been the very first because I don't, I think I was alone or maybe mom was just out getting lunch, but they were coming, you know, my first bag had run out. It must've been the first day of treatment. So the, the first bag of, of medication of poison had run out and the nurse came to switch me and I said, ready for poison number two. And she looked so uncomfortable and I felt kind of bad because I was just trying to like make a joke, lighten the mood a little. Um, but she apparently didn't want the mood lightened as much as I did and didn't seem to like my joke. Um, so that was the last time I tried a joke on one of the nurses because I wasn't very funny. Now, another time during the, the switch of my, of my chemos, there was a pretty good bubble in the line. Now, when there is air in your IV, particularly in TV, they make it seem like the tiniest bit of air in your IV can cause, I think, a, a pulmonary embolism, but, but essentially can kill you. Now, it's not that dramatic. Little bubbles aren't a problem. But when I say there is a bubble, I mean there was a good three inches, maybe more than that, uh, somewhere between three and five inches of air in my line. And I called a nurse over and I tried to point it out, but she seemed busy and harried. And I didn't think she was a particularly good nurse anyways, uh, just because I didn't think she was terribly attentive. And she really didn't look at the line, but she sort of waved me off and said, oh, it's not a big deal. And I tried to get her to look at it again, and she sort of was, like, heading off. She must have been really busy. But I had been going through... <laughs> Kenzie, stop! But I had been going through enough medical stuff recently that I knew well enough how to lock my own line to prevent whatever was in line from getting into my body, particularly being that it was going to run into my port and had a pretty good direct line to, you know, major organs. Um... And so I locked it and it alarmed and only then she came over and I was like, I want the air drawn out of this line because that's a super easy thing to do. Um, and she looked at it and, and at that point conceded and went to get it. But that just goes to show you, I am stubborn and I don't want air in my lines. Thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in today. And um, thanks also to Julius H. for this song, Beltane, which I found on Pixabay. Also, please remember, I still want to do an Ask Me Anything episode. So if you have any questions, you can send it to my email. That's ericaleeconklin at gmail.com. Erica, E-R-I-C-K-A, Lee, L-E-E, Conklin, C-O-N-K-L-I-N, at gmail.com. Now, before I go, don't forget, support single-payer healthcare, go get your damn vaccines, COVID-19 is real, and thanks to the NHS for supporting my continued existence. See you tomorrow. <laughs>